0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen, and I am one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you were here for week three in this series called Called. Now, the song that we just sang, Greatest Thy Faithfulness, was my grandfather's favorite song. It uh, was one that we performed at his funeral and is one that I think kind kind of characterized and colored kind of his whole life's perspective. And the reason that I believe this is because My grandfather uh, flew B-17s in World War II, and after 30-something missions, he was able to come home. And probably four or five years before he passed, he was interviewed by the Smithsonian Channel. We have like, you know, an hour and a half of just this incredible footage of him talking about his time and his experience during the war and what it was like. And it was kind of a subject and a topic that my father and his siblings and, and all the grandkids, we never really heard him talk about much. And so to hear him kind of in this kind of, you know, this candid interview was really something special. And one of the things, maybe of all of the things that he said in, you know, that 90 minute interview that has stuck with me is they begin to ask him about the emotional, psychological impact of, of just the casualties of war and the loss of life of friends and, you know, and fellow soldiers. And what he spoke of. Struck me. He said, You know, the whole time that I was there, and then when I came home, and my life since, I've asked the question, Why me? Like, of all of the men and women who didn't make it home, why was he able to come home? Why me? Why me? Why me? What was it that allowed him to return to his family to live this long life of 90 plus years? And I think the impact and the result of that question that he asked throughout kind of the span of his life framed his perspective of how he chose to live his life because he felt like he had been given a gift that was undeserved, unmerited, this grace of God to be able to return home to his family. He maintained this perspective of God's great and faithfulness throughout the entirety of his life. And for him, that manifested in the sense of responsibility, the sense of duty, this sense of uh, a debt that needed to be paid back in the way that he lived his life, in the way that he interacted with others. And so his life was marked by just an unbelievable kind of amount of compassion and kindness and generosity. And I think ultimately it was anchored because of this perspective of like, well, why me? Well, because I'm here, there is a work for me to do. There is a duty that I have to participate In this life, in the way that God has provided it to me, and kind of at its heart, kind of the effect of all of this in my grandfather's life is really kind of what we're after in this sermon series. I know it kind of took a long way to get there, but the goal of this series is really to help us understand the invitation that exists before us. Because kind of in the Christianese kind of lexicon, when we talk about calling, so oftentimes it's spoken about like a soulmate. Like there's only one out there, and if you don't find it, kind of your life is doomed. And so we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to think about our calling. What are we gonna do with our life? How are we going to make it impactful and meaningful and significant? And we go around searching and, you know, maybe you end up as a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old wondering, I still haven't found my calling. What am I supposed to do with my life? And as we've said over the last couple of weeks, we actually think that misses the point. Yes, throughout Scripture, we see instances where God gives people specific callings. He invites them to complete specific tasks or to go to specific areas and to participate in what God's doing in the world. And there's a level of specificity to it. But I think when we frame calling this way, we miss out on all of the opportunities that we have on a day-to-day basis to participate in the work that God is doing in the world. The work that God has called us and invited us to join him in doing in the world. And so this is really the definition of calling that we've been using kind of over the scope of this series, and it's the one that we'll continue to use. And this is this. The calling is simply an invitation to participate in God's redemptive and creative work in the world. So we'll work backwards. From the beginning of time, God has been, is, and will continue to create and then redeem the world that God has created. We see this told through the stories of scripture, ways that God is creating, and then ways that God is redeeming that creation over and over and over again. It culminates ultimately with Jesus Christ, but we still see ways that God is creating and recreating and then redeeming the world around us. Now, God doesn't do this work by God's self. From the beginning, page one, Verse 1 of Genesis, what we see is God chooses to take on human helpers, to be his agents in the world through which he does many of these creative and redemptive works. That means that since God hasn't stopped creating and redeeming the world, and since he has always invited human agents to participate with him, there is an invitation to each one of us to participate as well, to take in the invitation to accept and to live our life in partnership with the work that God's doing in the world. And that's really what we, hope, we want you to understand in this series. If you take nothing else, or if you've got a grocery list that you're about to work on, or you've got some social media things you need to update in the rest of the sermon, if you hear nothing else, there is a part for you to play in God's story and God's work in the world. And we want to help you participate in it. We don't think it's one single thing sometimes. For some of you, it might be. I don't think we all need to, you know, pack our bags and move to a foreign country to be missionaries, although that might be true for some of us, or one of us, or none of us, but we think day to day, week in, week out, there's a role for us to play in the work that God is doing in the world. So over the course of this series, we've been looking at stories to help us better understand a calling. Now, there are moments in scripture and there are moments in the lives of people where there is this kind of miraculous calling that people experience. The clouds part, the beam of light shines down, a dove descends, you hear this audible voice of God calling somebody to do a specific thing. We're not going to spend any time talking about those. That feels pretty clear. If you hear an audible voice from the heavens and the clouds part, I don't know that you need me to help you discern what God is telling you. I don't know that you need any assistance this morning from us about what that means or the way that you should kind of follow the voice. If the voice is just in your head, maybe we have time to talk after the service. But if, ever, if other people hear this audible voice, I would maybe trust it. What we do want to talk about, though, is all of the other times, all of the other ways that God is inviting us to participate in his work. And the story that we're going to look at today, I think, is maybe my favorite example of this. And it's the story found in the book of Esther. So if you've kind of grown up with the kid's Bible or you went to Sunday school, maybe you're familiar with Esther. She ends up becoming queen of the Persian Empire. But here's the reason why I love the story of Esther. And Esther is 10 chapters long, and I have 22 minutes left. And so I'm going to do some high-level storytelling this morning, but here's what you need to know first. When we look at stories in Scripture, it's important to pay attention to who the characters are. Because oftentimes in these stories, there are ways that we can understand about who we are and who God is in the stories that Scripture tells. Four major characters in the story of Esther for our intents and purposes this morning. The first is King Xerxes. If you've seen the movie 300 and you know about kind of the Spartans and in in the battle with the Persian Empire, this is the same king. King Xerxes. Then you have Uncle Mordecai. Uncle Mordecai is kind of the adopted uncle of Esther. You have Esther, who eventually becomes Queen Esther. And then you have Haman. And everybody go, boo, Haman. Right? Haman's the bad guy. He's the the antagonist in this story. These are the four characters. Now, when you look through the story of Esther, what you will notice, intentionally, Esther is the only book of the Bible that has no reference or mention of God in it. It's the only one where God is not a character in the story. God does not have some part or God is not referenced. Now, you hear this and you think, well, maybe we should just throw this out. It doesn't sound like it's kind of a religious book. But what I think is so cool about the story of Esther and why I love that we sang Great is Thy Faithfulness right before this is because the way that Esther was written and designed was to invite you to investigate where God might be working behind the scenes. It was not an accident that God got left out. It was very intentional because in the midst of kind of the grimy kind of details of the story of Esther, there are parts in it about human behavior that you know we prefer to ignore that happen in our everyday lives. And the details of the story of Esther, what you see behind the surface and in the way that it kind of culminates in the end, is God's continued presence and God's continued providence. Basically, the conclusion of the book of Esther that the author wants you to come to is great as thy faithfulness. Wow, God, even in the midst of dark moments and difficult times, through the use of human agents, God is still at work in the world. And I actually think that all of this just times out beautifully because for so many of us, we are entering into a renewed season. We have kids going back to school, and even if you don't have kids going back to school, so many people have kids going back to school that it just spills and seeps into just kind of the ethos of our society and our community and our culture, that there's this renewed rhythm, this renewed focus. And so for many of us, we're entering into new chapters, new seasons, even if they're part of larger chapters and seasons, that sometimes it's easy to forget that God's present. It's easy to forget that God is working behind the scenes and he invites us to join God in that work. And so Esther is this really cool story that invites us not to look just at the story of Esther for the ways that God might be working, but for us to look at our own lives through the difficult moments, through the frustrating moments, through the moments where it seems like there is no evidence of God's presence or providence or activity at all. It invites us to kind of examine our own lives and say, okay, well, maybe in the end we can look back and say, great is thy faithfulness. It's not always easy to do in the moment. And my guess is when you recall difficult chapters and seasons of your life, it was hard to identify where God was in those moments as well. But it's only kind of in hindsight when you look back upon it that you're able to say, ah, God was there all along. I couldn't see it at the time. I got you know lost in the forest, but wow, God really was at work in my life. And so I hope that as we enter into these new seasons and this new school year and these new rhythms, that we will carry that confidence that even in difficult moments, even with new friend groups and with new challenges, that there is someone who is with us working behind the scenes throughout our entire life and our entire story. So with all that, how about we dive into the book of Esther so the way that the book of Esther works is it's all based around one conspiracy and this is a conspiracy concocted by Haman to kill all of the Jews in the Persian empire now i'm skipping over some important details if you're intrigued by this you're like oh this sounds like a disney movie you're like it's like the perfect disney movie like in the ways that it follows the patterns of other Disney movies, and I'll explain in a second. But I invite you to go back and to look at the story of Esther yourself. Ten chapters, easy read. You can do it this afternoon. So the story surrounds this conspiracy to kill all of the Jews. The way that it works is there was a queen of the Persian Empire, and she got banished from the empire because she wasn't listening to the king of the Persian Empire. Okay. Well, at the same time, there's a young woman named Esther. Her parents die. We don't know what happens to them, but we have kind of this orphan child who ends up finding herself in the king's palace. Her uncle at the time, or... Throughout the course of her life is Mordecai, so that's why he's Uncle Mordecai. Uncle Mordecai gives instructions, guidance. He's kind of the the wise mentor figure in Esther's life. Esther finds herself in the king's palace, participating in what we could call a beauty competition or a beauty pageant. Esther wins the beauty pageant, and she gets to become queen of the Persian Empire. It's like those kind of reality shows on TV, instead of a rose and a proposal, she's like queen of the whole empire. That's all I know of those shows. So that's as far as the analogy goes. But what happens is that now that Esther is queen and she has a relationship with Mordecai, there starts to become this interaction between Mordecai and Haman. Because Mordecai and Esther are Jews, they're not willing to participate in kind of the reverence that typically is associated and bestowed upon kings and their kind of chief in command. Well... Mordecai doesn't bow and doesn't give honor and reverence to Haman as he passes by. And this irritates and frustrates Haman. Because typically, you know, when we have these antagonistic figures, they're kind of consumed by their own ego and their own pride and their own glory. And this is true of Haman. And so Haman sees the disrespect that's happening to him by Mordecai, finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and instead of just taking care of Mordecai, he decides, well, I will convince King Xerxes, to issue a decree that goes out across the entire Persian empire to eliminate and exterminate all of the Jews. Let's just take care of everybody all at once instead of this one guy who's causing me problems. And this is kind of the inciting incident that kind of starts this whole story. Well, if you're Mordecai and you hear this, you become like extremely concerned with what's going to happen. There's this date months into the future where all of the Jews are going to be killed. That means... If you're Mordecai, yourself and your niece, Esther. And so what Mordecai does is he sends a message to Esther to try to invoke her assistance and participation in trying to eliminate this decree. Let me show you what this is. So in chapter 4, there's a messenger that Mordecai gives a message to. And this is what it says. Mordecai told him to instruct Esther To go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now this is an important detail and there's some things in here that I want to tease out because one of the reasons that Esther became queen is because Queen Vashti is no longer queen. The reason that Queen Vashti is no longer queen is because she wouldn't listen to the king. So there's a lot of rules and kind of decrees made about the importance of listening to the king one of these rules and decrees that was issued about listening to the king is you can't come into the king's kind of the king's throne room and presence without first him extending his golden scepter and acknowledging your presence and inviting you in so what Mordecai is suggesting that Esther does presents kind of this kind of moral dilemma this problem because she recognizes that if I disobey the king I'm going to end up like the last queen or anybody else who doesn't listen to the king and that doesn't end well for me or those people and this is the objection that Esther gives to the messenger to take back to Mordecai this is what she says she says then she instructs him to say to Mordecai any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them, and spares their lives. Now, in this moment, Esther has a very real objection to Mordecai's kind of suggestion that she helps solve this problem. She's like, "Listen, if I do this, it's going to come a great consequence and risk to myself. I'm not interested." And participating in this work because of the impact that it's going to have on me. This is really common for us to put our self-interest first and foremost. But Mordecai's response to Esther's fear, to her doubt, to their question about, well, is this really mine to do? And what happens to me if I participate in it? To all of those kind of realistic objections, he says these words. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. You're not different, you're not immune from the consequences of this decree. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Now I think some of the things that we don't really get to dig into because we're kind of rushing through the story of Esther is up until this point Esther has succeeded by being silent. She has been a Jew this entire time and through Mordecai's instruction he's told her do not tell anybody kind of about kind of the fact that you're a Jew. Keep it to yourself, don't say anything, be quiet, look pretty, win the pageant and then you'll advance and become queen of the Persian empire, which is what happens. She follows his instructions. She doesn't say anything. Until Mordecai says now it's time to speak up now it's time to say something now you have to change the way that you've always acted and operated you maybe have to do something new that you feel uncomfortable doing because this is what's required of you in this moment really Mordecai issues that calling and invitation for Esther to step into the story to play a part to pick up an oar and begin to row to do something that helps eliminate and alleviate of the consequences that are about to befall all of her people. There's an invitation to participate in this story. And Esther isn't sure what to do. I think the other important thing that I want to point out in Mordecai's words here is this line, for if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I think so often there's this artificial pressure we place on ourselves that like, we have one calling. If we miss it, then we've missed our life. Well, no. This speaks to the way that God is at work trying to redeem and restore the situation. If Esther doesn't take up the opportunity, God will find somebody else who's willing. God will choose somebody else. But there's a choice. Will Esther play a part in this story? She's scared for obvious reasons, but Mordecai's like, this is up to you. Like, God's going to solve this one way or the other, but are you willing to be a participant in his solution? I think it's interesting the way that in this story, God doesn't just kind of speak out from the heavens and tell Esther what to do. In this way, it actually comes as kind of a a challenge, kind of a provocation from Mordecai to do something about what she sees, what she's experiencing and what's happening in the world around her. This in, in ways is similar to kind of part of kind of my story is how I became a minister. The fuller story I'll share next week, um, but I'll fast forward you to the point where I dropped out of seminary. So former seminary dropout, I did finish my degree, uh, but former seminary dropout. And in the period after dropping out of seminary, I was just working in a church and I was going through the motions and like kind of trying to do a good job and playing my part in what was happening at the church, but I wasn't really living into the invitation that had been extended to me. The invitation to actually to become an ordained minister and to fully participate uh, in the way that I had been called to. And a lot of it was because I was scared. A lot of it was because I asked the question, well, who am I? Like, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not capable enough. To do that, who am I to stand in front of people and to talk about what God is doing in their lives? And so there was a lot of reasons where I was like, I'll let somebody else do it and I'll just play the support role. That's more comfortable. I'll hide kind of in the background and like let everybody else um, kind of take the lead. Until I had a, a friend who became a mentor because of this conversation, after a planning meeting. Uh, one day he said, Hey, Stephen, will you come into my office? I want to talk to you about something. So we hadn't had a lot of interaction at this point. Um, his name's John, and John and I hadn't kind of met much one-on-one, and so this was kind of an unusual conversation for us to have. And so I was like, I have kind of thought maybe I was in trouble. You know, you get called into the principal's office or something, and you're sitting there, and you're like, Well, what's going to happen next? And John begins to ask me kind of about, like, Tell me your story, and tell me about kind of your call to ministry, and... You, wait, you were in seminary and you dropped out. We don't have a lot of dropouts in seminary, so what are you still doing here? Typically, if people drop out of seminary, they like, don't work in a church, so what's going on with you? And then, I won't forget what he said. In a way, it was kind of like Mordecai's challenge to Esther. He said, if you don't go back to school and get ordained, you are wasting it. You are wasting your gifts. You are wasting this opportunity that's in front of you. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Or God will stop loving you. He said, he said but you really are. You're going to waste this opportunity if you don't go back. And I just couldn't shake it. The moment he told me that, I was like, I knew he was right. I knew I had been hiding. I had been waiting. I had been hesitating because I, I wasn't sure if this was really my invitation to accept. And so after a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment and a lot of wrestling with this prompt... I said yes. I accepted the opportunity to go back to seminary and to start the ordination process. None of those were enjoyable or fun for me. And yet, like, I knew that it was something that I was supposed to do. I knew it was part of what accepting the invitation to participate in God's work in the world meant for me in my life in that specific moment. And I think that this speaks to the ways that God is calling each one of us. It may not be a candid conversation in somebody's office where you kind of get called on the carpet. But my guess is there are ways that God is speaking to you about invitations that are before you that maybe you've put off. Maybe you're like, no, I'm not the right person for that. Or, no, that would feel uncomfortable. Or, no, I don't know scripture enough. Or, no, I don't want to teach Grove kids because who am I? You know, all of the reasons... There are invitations awaiting all of us. And God's still going to continue God's creative and redemptive work in the world, whether we say yes or not. But if we don't, it means that we don't get to play a part in the story. Like if Esther says no here, the book of Esther stops in chapter four. And it's called something else because somebody else said yes. And this is kind of the conversation that Mordecai's having with Esther in not as many words and then he goes on and this is, i think is such a powerful line maybe you've heard this or seen this on a bumper sticker a coffee cup maybe he says who knows he's still speaking to esther he says who knows perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this this is kind of that great as thy faithfulness recognizing god at work behind the scenes his continual presence and providence in our life who knows esther Maybe the reason that you're here is so that you have this opportunity to leverage your position to make a difference, to make an impact. You can imagine the weight of that statement to Esther. The way that it maybe softens her heart, encourages her to step forward, even in the face of uncertainty and fear and doubt, to accept the invitation. So Esther sends the reply to Mordecai. She says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go. I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law, and it's likely going to call me or get me killed. If I perish, I perish. She's willing to place kind of her sense of duty and understanding of the invitation above her own kind of personal security. So she says, if I perish, I perish. And what ends up happening kind of in the rest of the story is Haman's plans end up unraveling and working against Haman Haman gets exposed for conspiring against the king and against the Jews. Haman ends up being executed and Mordecai ends up being acknowledged and kind of elevated kind of in a reversal of fortunes and roles. Haman dies and Mordecai gets elevated. Esther goes before the king. The king listens to Esther. He grants her request to kind of save the Jewish people and they issue a new decree that allows the Jewish people to kind of defeat anybody who was going to kind of take advantage of them based on the old decree. So in commemoration of kind of this moment and of kind of Mordecai and Esther accepting the invitation to participate in what God was trying to do to redeem the world in that moment, the Jewish people created this celebration called, called Purim. That's still being celebrated today, this March. There will be another commemoration of this moment in time when people said yes to God's invitation. Now, I can't promise that if you say yes to God's invitation, there's going to be a holiday named after you or in commemoration of you. But I do know that it advances God's work in the world. I do know that you enter the story as opposed to just kind of witnessing it unfold around you. That you have the opportunity to play a part, to be one of God's co-agents in his work to redeem and create the world. And so as we kind of wrap up this morning and think about the ways that we have the opportunity to ask the question, you know, does our position allow us an opportunity to play a part for such a time as this, like Mordecai asked Esther, it would be the question that I'd ask you to kind of reflect on this morning, this week, to let it kind of trouble and disturb you to begin to start to pay attention to where you are placed. Where are you? What's your context? Your position in your company, kind of your social network, maybe the role you play in your group of friends or the new school that you're starting at, where are you placed? What is your kind of opportunity and sphere of influence? What's your kind of immediate context for Esther? It was the king's palace. For Mordecai, it was the relational influence with Esther. It's easy for us to say, oh, no, there's not a role for me to play because, you know, I'm not ordained or I'm not a pastor or I'm not, whatever it is, whatever the natural objections. But I think what the story of Esther teaches us is that there is a position that we all play. We all have some position in the world and in the lives of the people that we interact with. And even if it feels like your kind of position in the kingdom is really small or maybe it's really big, you are placed in a particular place for such a time as this. There is an opportunity before you. And yeah, it might feel scary. And yeah, you probably feel underqualified, but the invitation is there all the same. And it may not result in people's lives being saved but it definitely will result in people's lives being impacted. It might be as simple as an invitation to church. It might be as small as stepping up to participate and serve Sunday in a couple of weeks. It might be leading a Bible study or teaching a kid who's never heard about God one of the stories of Scripture. It might be something really, really simple. It might be far more complicated and it might just look like all of the ways that you have an opportunity to show God's love and kindness to other people day in, day out. It's not always contained around a specific action. I mean, the last command that Jesus gives his disciples is to love each other. As I've loved you. That, that command hasn't stopped being important. That, that command hasn't stopped being issued to the followers of Jesus. And for those of us here today who say that we follow Jesus... That's the invitation that we have. So where are you placed? And then the last thing is how can you participate? What does it look like to get in the game? What does it mean for you to begin to accept the invitation? How can you begin to listen for the small promptings of the Holy Spirit or a friend or a coworker or ways that God might be trying to get your attention to participate in the work that God's doing in the world? It might be through reading scripture to expose yourself to new ways that you can join the story and participate in the work God's doing. It might be in silence and in prayer and in meditation, listening for ways that God is trying to extend his invitation to you. It might be seeing that kid sitting alone at school and saying, I'm going to go over even if nobody else will. Hi, my name is. It might be really simple things that we try to ignore and dismiss or, Oh, that's not mine to do. Somebody else will come along and do it. That's not my role. That's not my job. What will people think? Will people make fun of me? It's my livelihood at stake. And all the while, God is just inviting us deeper and deeper and deeper into the story. My hope and prayer for us as a church and as a community is that we would be people who would say yes. Who would say, okay, I'll do it. And if I perish. I perish. Come what may, I'll say yes to this invitation. Let me pray for us, and then we'll invite the band to lead us in one last song. Gracious God, we come before you this morning, and we are thankful for this invitation to join you in the work that you're doing in the world. To say yes to all of the ways that we can participate. Small, mundane, repetitive, complicated, scary, intimidating... God, give us the courage to say yes and to participate with you in your work. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.